Let's pray, please. Lord, it is so apparent to me every time I speak that I need you so much. Lord, it's, it's, it's just not in me to be able to proclaim your word the, with the sovereignty and glory and purity that it needs. So I just pray that the Spirit of God that dwells in us would just clarify the word to us, that we might see it, Lord, in a way that it's meant to be seen and not to add or detract from it. And we just pray all this in the name of Jesus for your glory. Amen. It's... I think about um, amazing grace, and I don't think we actually think about it very often. Because if we did, we wouldn't do or think some of the things we do. Because the grace of God is so amazing, so wonderful, and so difficult to understand how it could possibly apply to us. And yet, we just take it for granted so often and sing a song or talk about it. And the concept doesn't carry over to the purity in us that it ought to carry over to. I'm a living example of it, <clears throat> and it's so sad. <clears throat> I um, have been going back and forth between two messages for the last couple of days, and you'll be happy to know that I haven't decided on which one. You have or haven't? Have not. <laughs> Um, I'm going to do a, a, just a brief message on the revelation in the letter to the church at Sardis. And then I might just jump right into the other one. They're not that long, so hopefully I can do this. If not, oh well. Which I hear often. <laughs> The, um, the letter to the church at Sardis is in Revelation 3, verses 1 through 6. <clears throat> and let's read those verses. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have, a few, you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, 
and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. <clears throat> One of two churches that there's no word of commendation. The other one being Laodicea. The glory of Sardis was in the past. Hundreds of years earlier, it had been the capital city of the kingdom of Lydia. And later on, a center of Persian government. By New Testament times, it had sunk into relative obscurity. The history of the city provides an interesting parallel to the spiritual condition of the church in Sardis. The Acropolis, which is a word that means a, the upper part of the, of the city that's fortified. You, you see it in Acts when they talk about the Acropolis and such. But anyway, it's the upper part of the city that's fortified against any kind of invasion. And the Acropolis was surrounded on three sides by sheer cliffs. And they were considered impossible to navigate. In fact, there was a saying that the capture of the Acropolis of Sardis meant achieving the impossible. Yet twice in its history, it had been scaled. The cliffs had been scaled. The city had been captured. A false sense of security had led to a lack of vigilance on the part of the city. Why, do you why should you post guards if no one can scale the perilous peaks all around you? In a spiritual sense, as well, the church has gone, had grown falsely secure. Unless they wake up immediately and increase their defenses, they're going to fall to the enemy, the enemy of the church. To the church in Sardis, Christ presents himself as one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Holding the seven stars represents Christ's sovereign control over the churches. Holding the seven spirits of God, an allusion to the fullness of the Holy Spirit, means the sovereign control extends even to heavenly beings. All creation is under his control. The church's problem is a contradiction between name and reality. A problem that so many of us have today. It had a name, a reputation, for being alive, but it was dead. Or at least it was almost dead, for there was some remnant of life that hung on, keeping hope barely alive. The Lord says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. Literally, it says, be watching. And it's especially relevant for Sardis because the city had been, never been taken by a frontal assault, but only by stealth 
from the side or behind because the mountains were thought to provide all the defense it needs. But their lack of vigilance proved their undoing on two different occasions. The church is to hear, obey, and repent. If they don't, the Lord's going to come like a thief in an hour they don't expect. There's still a few people in Sardis who remain devoted to Jesus, walking in undefiled garments through a polluted society. Nevertheless, the dominant theme, the dominant tone of Jesus' words to Sardis are a somber warning to a slumbering church. So what's causing this sleep unto death in Sardis? There's no mention of the Nicolaitans that's in other churches. They're the ones that lured the church into immorality and idolatry. No mention of them. There's no Balaam-like prophet or prophetess like Jezebel <coughs> leading them astray. And even though Sardis was known to have a strong community of Jews and a vibrant paganism, there are no external sources of intimidation. No social separation or persecution like the other churches experienced. None of those things are mentioned. Nevertheless, the church was spiritually unconscious. Jesus' repeated urging to wake up and his threat to break into the congregation's deadly comfort like a thief show that Sardis had lost its awareness of Jesus' future return and what that meant for living in the present. The majority of the congregation was asleep and had forgotten the grace they had received in the past and the motivation for purity that grace supplies. Let me repeat that. The majority of the congregation was asleep and had forgotten the grace they had received in the past and the motivation for purity that grace supplies. Sardis had forgotten that it was engaged in a spiritual holy war. Repentance for Sardis means awakening. It means a return to awareness about their danger and a remembrance of what you've received and what you've heard. The gospel and the grace it conveys. Verses 3-3, three, three, let me read it again. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Luke 12, 35 through 38 tells the parable of the Lord's sudden return, where he promised that those who remain vigilant will receive the master's good pleasure. Let me read that scripture to you. Luke 12, 35 through 38. 
Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like the men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But he also warns that a sudden return is going to surprise a lot of them. And it continues on in the next two verses in the same chapter in Luke. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his, left his house to be take, broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not, do not expect. The thief in the night is a scene that you find over and over again in the New Testament. You find it in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Peter and in Revelation as well as here. And they all emphasize the vital importance of alertness. Since we don't know the time of Jesus' coming, and those living in constant, not, excuse me, those not living in constant preparedness are going to be caught off guard. But again, you've still got a few people that did remain faithful, who had not soiled their clothes. They're the walk with Christ in white. <clears throat> Soiling one's clothes would refer to defiling involvement with local pagan religious practices. White clothes speak of justification, cleared of their guilt, their sins forgiven. The few who have not sold their clothes with compromise will walk with Christ in the pure garments of righteousness. To overcome is to remain true and Jesus promises believers that their name will never be removed from the book of life. <clears throat> the Greek sentence has a double negative for emphasis as if Jesus meant, I will never by any means blot out his name. And some people have seen this scripture and say, well, he's promising not to remove your name from the book of life, but what about eternal security? Well, they're not reading the verse very carefully because Jesus says, I will not under any circumstances remove your name from the book of life. So he's not saying anything about ever removing a person's name from the book of life once it's there. According to the Greek historian Herodotus, the inhabitants of Sardis had over the course of many years acquired a reputation of lax moral standards and even open licentiousness. And licentiousness usually 
refers to unrestrained sexual immorality. The church's members belong to Christ in name, but not in heart. This distinction between reputation and reality, between what man sees and between what God sees, is of great importance in every place and every age. It hasn't changed. We've got responsibilities to others, but we're primarily accountable to God. And it's before him that we stand, and to him that one day we have to give an account. We should therefore not rate human opinion too highly, and remember that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. The church in Sardis was commanded to remember what you have received and heard. Keep it, excuse me, and repent. The church at Ephesus had been told to remember, and now the church at Sardis is told to remember too. Memory is a, is a wonderful and blessed gift. We may not think so sometimes, but it is. Nothing can stab the conscience so wide awake as memories of the past. The shortest road to repentance is remembrance. Let someone recall what they used to be and reflect on what, by God's grace, they could be, and they will be led to repent, turning back from their sin to Christ. And this is the message to Sardis on the verge of falling into complete despair of having their lamp taken away. Now, I was reading something from Kenneth West, and I can't be sure if it's pronounced West or Wust because it's W-U-E-S-T. He was a Greek scholar at Moody Bible Institute for many years, been dead for some time now, but he wrote, he has written a number of books on, for example, Philippians and the Greek New Testament where he gives you a verse-by-verse expanded translation because so many English words are imprecise compared to the Greek word. And um, he's written a book, uh, a small book called Byways in the New Testament. And it was fascinating to me to read what he had to say. So you're going to hear it too. The message was called The Divine Sculpture's Masterpiece. And it starts out with giving a verse in Romans that we're familiar with. It's Romans 8, 29 and 30. Now, usually we start at verse 28 that we know, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. 
Verse 29 and 30 read, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. He gives a few words about the sequence there. And then he tells a story based on the glory of God. He says, the sculpture had a wonderful son. He had many statues in his art gallery, which he had cut out of rough granite in the course of his lifetime. But now he had come to the decision that he would like a group of statues all made in the very image of his son. So he goes to the large blocks of granite which the quarry, quarry man have blasted out of the mountainside. One might wonder at his selection, for they appear to be the least promising of all those from which he had to choose. There they were, scarred by the weather, discolored, cracked. In the eternity before this universe was created, the divine sculpture had it in his heart to make some images of his son, the Lord Jesus, not carved out of granite, but molded from living personalities. He passed by fallen angels, because there's a verse in Hebrews that says, not of angels does he take hold, but he takes hold of the seed of Abraham. And he chose inferior material for human being creatures full of sin, rebellious toward him, scarred and seared with the deadly fruit of evil doing. He chose the most unlikely material he could find. He gets more glory to himself by choosing red clay into which he has breathed the breath of life. And conforming that inferior material into the very image of his son, than if he had taken hold of angels for salvation. In perfect justice and righteousness, he passed by fallen angels and in infinite mercy chose fallen human beings. After the sculpture had selected the blocks of granite, he placed a tag upon each of them. On the tag was written, to be conformed to the image of my son. This sculptor had many blocks of granite coming from the quarry some to be used for one purpose and others for another. But these which were labeled to be conformed to the image of my son were to be kept separate. They were labeled for this one destiny. So the divine sculptor, after designated certain out of lost humanity to be conformed to the image of his son, predestined them to this wonderful destiny. The word predestinated comes from a Greek word which means to fix the limit to, to fix the boundary beforehand. 
It was used in the sentence since the boundaries of a piece of land are to be fixed. After God foreknew the sinner, he put a tag on him to be conformed to the image of my son. The sinner was to be kept for just that purpose and no other. This is the meaning of the Greek word translated predestinated. It is the same Greek word translated determinate in Acts 2.23. That's where Peter gives his message of this man chosen by the determinate mercy of God. After the sculptor had selected his blocks of granite at the quarry and had put a label on each one to be conformed to the image of my son, he returned to his home and sent his men with the large stone wagon and Derek to haul the granite to his studios. Just so, after he foreknew us, that is, after he had chosen us to a certain destiny, and after he had predestined us, that is, after he had put a label on us to be conformed to the image of my son, which label answered to the specifications of the foreknowledge the divine sculptor called us. This Greek word was used in the first century as a technical word in legal practice and means an official summons. As in the case of summoning of a witness to court, the word means here more than a mere invitation. It's a divine summons. The one summoned is, commuted, is constituted willing to obey the summons, not against, but with his free will and consent. It's an effectual call. The one always responds, by the grace are you saved. Namely, that particular grace made possible and bestowed and thus operative at Calvary. And that not of yourself is a gift of God. The word that in the Greek was referring not to the word faith, but to the idea of salvation, which dominates the context. Salvation is all of grace. The faith we exercise in our appropriation of the Savior is given by God and is included in salvation provided. Thus the call of the divine sculpture is a divine summons which is always answered by the one summoned. A couple of more paragraphs. After the sculptor had chosen blocks of granite in his studio, he starts work on them. There they are, scarred, irregular, rough, cracked, discolored. A visitor comes in. What do you mean to tell me that you are... You, what do you mean to tell me that you are using these poor-looking materials for the statues of your son? Yes, replied the sculptor. I receive far more satisfaction and fame from using inferior materials and turning out a superior piece of work. And after all, you are directing your criticism against these rough-hewn blocks of granite. I do not see these when I work. I have in mind the finished product, and that will be perfect. You are not touching the statue of my son with your criticism, but rather these rough blocks of granite. 
I stand here in their justification, for I see them as perfect, conformed already to the image of my son. In my reputation as a sculptor, I have assumed the responsibility for choosing such inferior granite. If my reputation is being maligned, as a result, I cannot help it. I am doing it for the sake of the finished product and the increased fame which will finally come to me. And as Satan enters the studios of the divine sculpture and prefers charges against the saints, how imperfect they are, how weak, how unfaithful, how prone to sin, but he's only looking at the unfinished product. His charges fall short of the mark. For the divine sculptor answers, your charges may all be true, but I am not looking at the material upon which I'm working, but at the finished product. I look upon myself at Calvary. I took upon myself at Calvary all their sins. I made myself of no reputation. Their sins have been paid for and put away on the basis of divine justice. I say, see each saint right now, perfect, sinless, shining with all the beauty of my only begotten son. So God justifies us. His son is our righteousness, our beauty, our, ador our adornment. The sculptor goes on day after day with his work of cutting the granite. Rough corners are hewn off, discolorations disappear, jagged surfaces are made smooth. The block of granite begins to assume the shape and contour of the sculptor's son. But the sculptor does not see the unfinished block of granite before him. He sees the image of his son as he looks right through the rough edges, the weathered, scarred surface. God foreknew us, predestinated us, called us, justified and glorified us. We're already glorified in his eyes. The divine sculpture was the finished, sees the finished products while he worked the process of sanctification, namely the work of the Holy Spirit gradually conforms us to the image of his son. We're already glorified in his eyes. Someday we'll be actually what the divine sculpture sees us to be. Now, as he works upon us in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, we shall be changed. The miracle of glorification completing the work which the process of sanctification began. And then you shall be like him, for we shall see him just as he is, a sinner saved by grace, conformed to the image of the wonderful Son of God. This is the divine sculpture's masterpiece. There's a lot there. I've had to read it <coughs> three or four times, and um, it brings a lot of tears to your eyes if you really read what God has done and is doing. It's, uh, I don't know what to say except glory to God. Let's pray. Lord, we know that you never let us go. And we know that, Lord, through every trial, every... <coughs> hardship, 
You never let us go. But you're continuing to, to work, Lord, to make us into that finished product that brings glory to you and honors your son. You're making us to look like him. And Lord, there's a lot of work that has to be done in us to accomplish that. But you're the divine sculptor. You can do all things. And Lord, we are just so grateful beyond our understanding and beyond our ability to communicate for who you are and what you're doing. We just give you thanks and honor, Lord our God. In Jesus' name, amen.